This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the Country Hour. I'm Madeline McCosker joining you for your lunch hour. And coming up, MLA is changing up its livestock reporting, getting rid of a $10 floor. Uh, those changes will be explained for you very soon. Also in the next half hour, reports suggest pig numbers in China have returned to pre-African swine fever levels. And other than the benefits of the siesta... We're asking the question, what can Australian farmers learn from Mexican ranchers? Let's think about how the donkeys evolve in nature versus a horse. So the horse evolved on the plains, on those prairies or grasslands, and they just run away. The donkeys evolve on the mountain range. So when they face a predator, they need to think about what to do because they cannot run. That and more before one o'clock. There are concerns Australia's new multi-million dollar fire warning system is miscalculating the danger, potentially hampering the backburning operations and unnecessarily unnecessarily alarming the public. The body representing fire authorities insists this system is still better than the previous one, but a former fire scientist and some local councils are raising questions about it. Jemima Burt reports. In September last year, a new fire danger rating system was introduced across the nation with four levels, moderate, high, extreme and catastrophic. So we've used our knowledge to change the fire danger rating system. It's now simpler and clearer and it could save your life. The warnings were developed by state and federal governments and appear on colour-coded road signs, as well as being shared on social media, radio, television and other outlets. The new system was a recommendation from the Bushfire Royal Commission, held after the Black Summer fires. It's a gross over-prediction of the fire danger. Until 2019, Andrew Sturgis ran the Predictive Services Unit at Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. He says the new system that's used to generate the warnings requires complex vegetation, fuel and atmospheric data that's not available everywhere. We don't have those refined inputs. We don't have the quality of inputs that we need to get really confident fire danger ratings out of the new system. And he believes gaps in the data are affecting the results. We are over-forecasting the fire danger rating. We are seeing catastrophic and extreme fire danger rating under conditions that it's not supported by the data and the science. Earlier this month, Queensland authorities declared catastrophic conditions for the Darling Downs and Granite Belt in the state's south. Gundawindi Mayor Lawrence Springborg says the predicted conditions never eventuated. But that day, of course, we started with some showers in the morning, which did dry out. Certainly, they weren't the most serious fire conditions that I would have witnessed in my time. Andrew Sturgis agrees. The largest area that I've ever seen was declared catastrophic. Now, the forecast wasn't, wasn't great, but it was a long way short of catastrophic. A spokesperson for Queensland Fire and Emergency Services says the issue that led to the over-forecasting earlier this month has been resolved and that it continues to work closely with other jurisdictions in the ongoing refinement and enhancement of the fire danger rating system. Issues have also been flagged in Western Australia. In June, the Emergency Management Committee of the Mundaring Shire Council on the outskirts of Perth noted that public confidence has waned as a result of the sensitivity of the new system. The Australasian Fire Authorities Council, which represents fire and emergency services, says the old system was outdated. 
In a statement, CEO Rob Webb says continual improvements and updates to maps and fuel information are being made. And while it's still being fine-tuned, it's a fundamentally safer system. But Gundawindi Mayor Lawrence Springborg says he'll still be asking more questions. Because after a while, if warnings are listed and things don't happen, then there is a risk that the community may become a little bit complacent. Gundawindi Mayor Lawrence Springborg ending that report from Jemima Burt. And while we are on the topic of fires, there are a number burning across the state at the moment. The fire burning at Mundaloon and Burnham near Bow Desert is at a watch and act level and residents are being asked to prepare to leave. Properties between Verisdale Scrub Road and Bow Desert Beanley Road are being impacted by the large fire burning in that area. Other fires are at advice level, with emergency services asking residents at Flagstone, Delanil and Barorin to stay informed. And you can stay informed with updates on ABC Radio and the ABC Emergency website. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. It is 10 minutes past 12 on the Queensland Country Hour and Meat and Livestock Australia has changed the parameters of its National Livestock Reporting Service to capture rock-bottom prices in market reports. Previously, any stock selling for less than $10 a head wasn't reported on and didn't contribute to the market indicators. Ripley Atkinson, Acting National Livestock Reporting Service Manager at MLA, says the $10 floor has now been removed. The National Livestock Reporting Service within MLA has a role to accurately and transparently report the sheep and cattle markets in the sale yards across the country. And from last Monday, the 18th of September, we made a change whereby sheep and lambs that were sold or transacted in the sale yard markets for less than $10 are now reported in the categorical table data. Uh, and that was, that was the change that was made from $10 uh, down to a dollar a head or more. And why was there previously that uh, that ten dollar floor? The way that our reporting service has um, has evolved and worked, whereby um, six months ago, when when we made a change internally to how the reporting structure worked with the use of an application, the market wasn't in the position it was now, and that was the the dynamic whereby that that ten dollar reporting floor, if you will, uh, for, for reporting stock. There weren't any stock selling for less than $10 at that point in time. Progress and fast forward to where we are now. Now you are seeing strong upstanding sheep and lambs that are selling in the sale yards for less than $10. And the National Livestock Reporting Service has a responsibility to transparently report those animals in the market. Because the reporting of those sales, that's what feeds into the, uh, the, the indicators, isn't it? That's correct, yes. So you need to be reporting those sales to make sure that the, the indicators are accurately reflecting what's, what's taking place at the sale yards? That's right, yeah. So the, with this change, yes, there are now stock that are transacted in the market that will then flow through to the generation of the indicators that will be included in those indicators, whether that's the merino lamb or the mutton indicator, that those, those stock transacted from a dollar upwards will be included. Uh, by no means is it the majority of sales that are that are occurring where stock is selling for less than ten dollars. If anything, it's the it's the minimum sort of number of stock. It's it's by no means the majority, and that's an important thing to remember as well. But yes, they are included in the, the generation of the indicators. 
and as you said, a, a low number, but have you got a sense of what portion of, of livestock are selling under that, that $10 mark at the moment? It's very dependent on the market and where where that market is. So there are instances across the eastern seaboard. Dubbo, for example, is one where there are numbers of stock that have sold for less than $10, and it also is dependent on the weekly yarding. Some weeks you might have more. Uh, some weeks you might have less, and we know this week there wasn't as many, but last week and, and some weeks previous there were a higher number. It just depends on the location of the sale yard and where the market is at the time and, and the yarding and the quality of stock presented to that market as well. The people doing these reports and feeding this data into the, the, the generation of the indicators are, are the MLA market reporters. What's it like for them at the moment reporting on on sales, which in many instances are are quite grim on average we've had our livestock market officers some of them have been with us for for 20 years plus so they've seen numerous examples of cyclicality of the highs and lows in the market they're very well accustomed to and attuned to the way that the market moves in in the area they report very very well they're very competent with what they're doing and they understand that this is the way the market is they recognize it's cyclical and they also understand that our responsibility as the National Livestock Reporting Service is to transparently and accurately report the market. So they recognise the importance and the need for us to deliver that service to industry and, and uh, levy paying producers. Because I suppose in some cases, those in the industry don't necessarily want to talk about how bad things are because they're concerned that that might only fuel negativity. But but as you say, it's, it's the MLA market reporter's position to to just report impartially what's transpiring? Yeah, independently, as as a levy payer-funded function of the business, we have a responsibility to, to independently and accurately and openly report what's going on in the market. And that's our role to play by delivering the market reports and the indicators. And whatever the market is doing, that's uncontrollable. But our role is to then provide that information with data and then we can create insights through our other teams to then provide that back to the producers and the broader industry with insights on what's occurring. And, and this dynamic at play is, is a part of that. And uh, perhaps it's obvious, but we certainly know at, at the country hour that uh, the market reports that we play are perhaps the most uh, listened to aspects of the program. So so clearly this market information is important to producers. Yeah, we recognise we did a subscriber survey that for those people that engage with the National Livestock Reporting Service and the products we deliver, and we know more than 85% of our subscribers place a high importance or a very high importance on access to uh, the market reports through media organisations. That includes quite specifically, obviously, the ABC Country Hour and, and that market reporting segment. We recognise how critical the delivery of this information is through channels like the ABC Country Hour, and we know it's very valued by industry and particularly the producers. So our role is to then support that by transparently and accurately reporting what's going on in, in the sales. That was Ripley Atkinson, Acting National Livestock Reporting Service Manager at MLA. He was speaking there with Angus Varley.
Reports suggest pig numbers in China have returned to pre-African swine fever levels. An outbreak of the highly contagious disease in 2018 saw millions of pigs die and the Chinese pork industry decimated. However, Tim Jackson, Meat and Livestock Australia's global supply analyst, told Karen Hunt it's possible we'll never know the extent of the disease. Over the period where African swine um, fever was really affecting Chinese production, there were lots of changes in import markets and, and consumption in China and all of that. So we'll never know what their consumption landscape would have looked like without it. But we do know fairly straightforwardly that when ASF came into China, the effect was an immediate, substantial and long-lasting uh, decline in the hog herd and a corresponding decline in production, which has persisted for several years. And even now, their production is only getting back close to levels that it was pre-ASF, which means that there were yeah, several years where consumption was really down, and particularly in 2019, that expressed itself through really, really substantial increases in imports. If China has recovered its herd numbers, what does that mean for domestic prices for pork in China? Well, it means that uh, prices for pork in China have come down. We know that this had happened over 2019 and for some of 2020. Kind of prices for Chinese consumers of pork were in some cases higher than they were for beef, which is very unusual in the Chinese context. Um, that's now reversed and it's gone back to being relatively similar in price to what it was prior to ASF, while some of the other proteins have kind of gone back to closer to what they were pre-ASF as well. Does this mean that the Chinese consumer has regained some confidence in buying their domestic product? What we do know is that over that period, consumers in China started consuming considerably more alternate proteins. So just to look at it between 2012 and 2022, overall, kind of protein consumption in China went up by about 12%. But for sheep meat, that was 31%. And for beef and veal, that was 61%. So we can say fairly comfortably that regardless of what Chinese consumers think or their confidence in pork, they're definitely more interested in and eating more beef and sheep meat. Is there a change in the makeup of the protein market going from Australia into China? Are different meats now in demand than what used to be? What's really, really striking from prior to the ASF outbreak to now is the size and volume of the market in general. So there have been very, very substantial increases in beef exports into China. In particular, there's been the development of a large uh, market for Australian mutton. So in the year to date so far, China is the largest uh, mutton market, which certainly wasn't true prior to ASF in China. Now that's partially got to do with the demand for alternate proteins after ASF was found in China, but it's also related to yeah, general economic growth and increasing desire on Chinese consumers to try new foods and eat things that they like. Tim Jackson from Meat and Livestock Australia speaking there with Karen Hunt. It is 20 minutes past 12. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. 
Many of you would have heard of the potential of asparagopsis in reducing methane emissions in livestock. But there's some more competition on the block. A feed additive called Bovair has spent a decade being researched and developed overseas by global science giant DSM. But now it's about to become commercially available. As Lara Webster reports, Australian trials using the additive have seen reductions as high as 99%. Results overseas are said to have shown a quarter teaspoon per cow per day, on average, reduces methane emissions from dairy cattle by 30% and up to 45% for beef cattle. For the first time, the additive has been trialled in feedlots here in Australia. University of New England Associate Professor of Livestock Production, Fran Cowley, says the numbers have far exceeded those figures. It's actually the greatest suppression of methane that had been observed anywhere in the world with this product before. So um, overall, in the finisher diet, we were getting 90% inhibition of methane um, by including just a couple of teaspoons of Bovair 10 in the in the ration each day. Um, and that went up to 99% at times. So a, a really outstanding result and has it's a massive step towards producing carbon-neutral beef. So tell me how you went about this. How long did it take for you to test this additive and and to get these results? Yeah, so it's really important to make sure that everything we're doing is really relevant to the Australian industry because if Australian producers are to adopt technologies such as Bovair, they need to see that it's going to work in their systems. So we used a tempered barley-based diet that was formulated to be very similar to, uh, although um, feedlot diets vary across yards in Australia, it was um, something that was very uh, recognisable by most feedlots that would, um, something that they could potentially be running. So it was a representative diet. And we transitioned the cattle up onto finisher ration and then held them there and for 90 days on finisher. So it was a 112-day feeding period. And uh, um, one of the really good things that we found over that duration is that um, there was a fairly consistent effect of um, inhibition. There was a slight indication right towards the very end that there could have been a, a somewhat of a tick up in terms of methane at the end. So I think that's a question that we still have to answer, whether there might be any adaptation to overcome the inhibitory effects of Bovair in long-fed animals such as Wagyu. But there has also been lots of research done overseas in in dairy cows and fairly long-term feeding, which has been able to... which um, says that in certainly many scenarios, able to get a a fairly persistent effect in terms of methane inhibition. But certainly um, when we're starting to move eventually out of the feedlot sector and into grazing animals, breeding cows that are maybe potentially fed inhibitors such as Bovair, for a long term, um, a long time, then understanding um, can we maintain the persistence of that effect is going to become even more important. Associate Professor Fran Cowley. Swiss based chemist Mike Kinderman is the man who invented Bovair and has led its research and development. The feed additive Bovair is um, a small molecule that inhibits this transformation, the last step of of methane formation. It's produced out of two ingredients, um, two natural ingredients. One is um, uh, the bio-based alcohol, 
and the other one is uh, nitrate or nitric acid. Once it's produced, it's a liquid. We transform it into a powder. This powder is then conveniently being used as a, as a feed additive. You can mix it in the feed. And the mode of action is, while it's doing its job, it's broken down in its two natural um, fragments again that are present in the cow anyway. So as of today, we have finished over 65 feeding trials in 18 countries in all regions of the world. So in Europe, in North America, in Latin America, and also in Oceania, um, in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, that's also a learning process that we went through together with the international research community. One thing is that we did all these uh, feeding trials, all the research in, in strong collaboration with the academic partners and uh, also with the industry, with beef cattle and, and dairy industry. That's one thing. The other one is all our results are published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. So everything we did along this way is publicly available um, to policymakers, politicians, to the industry, to the research community, to the public. So there is, there is nothing hidden. Chemist Mike Kinderman. The research has been funded by Meat and Livestock Australia, which has recently conceded achieving zero net emissions for the sector by 2030 is an ambitious target requiring significant investment. Lara Webster with that report. The ABC Listen app means you can take your local ABC radio with you to the backyard or around the country. Take a little bit of home with you wherever you go. Search your app store for ABC Listen. Graziers across north and western Queensland have had a rare opportunity to learn from a Mexican rancher. Alejandro Carrillo hails from north of Mexico, from a place known for its great deserts and snow-capped mountains, making it an unrelenting location to run cattle. But for over a decade, Alejandro and fellow ranchers have adopted an approach which he describes as holistic and regenerative, allowing him to increase his stocking rate from 150 to 500 head of cattle and introduce over 400 sheep, 20 donkeys and a few goats. Speaking here with Lucy Cooper, he said he wants to show Australian landholders it's possible to transform any terrain, no matter how barren it may appear. The Chihuahuan Desert is... Um... It's a very diverse desert. You have cactus and uh, mesquite and woody plants and then some grasses as well. The problem with that is that with our management, we were actually getting the the desert even worse, worse and worse. And we need to remember that those lands, we have written evidence when the Spaniards uh, passed by and uh, came to that area that the grasses were as high as the saddle. So it was easy for ranchers to say, yeah, let's just put the cows there and then we just harvest the the, uh, the calves. And what we didn't know is that we were not working in sync with nature. And so what are some of those key changes that you've implemented on the ranch since returning? Well, the first thing that we did was to educate ourselves. Back in, in 2006, we were we were lucky to have a training across the state of Chihuahua on holistic management. And then I say, wow, that's exactly what I need. You ask me what we do in a few words is we try to mimic nature. So we don't, we don't have cows spread all across the ranch in different pastures or paddocks. We have all our herd in just one big herd that tries to mimic those big herds of bison, 
going across the plains, across the grasslands. So we actually go and graze as as less selective as possible. As long as we can keep those cows happy, then we can try to do a more even grazing in all the plant species with all that fertility. And then we move on. We move on and we move on. We move our cattle or livestock every day, every day, every day. Actually, in the last years, we're moving twice a day. So along with cattle, you also have sheep and goats in a separate herd. But could you tell me about the donkeys that you put in with the cattle? Why do you have donkeys on your ranch? The donkeys are helping us to take a lot of plants that the cows don't want to eat. Instead of us supplementing the cows, for the cows to eat more even, including, because for example, cows and sheep, they like to eat leaves. They don't like to eat the stems of the grass. And the the donkeys are helping us to eat stems of the plants and other woody plants. And so I do prefer to have that converted into manure than just standing there. And I don't want to force my cows. That's why I'm trying to do it in a way that together with nature, we can do a much better job. The donkeys also, as an added benefit, we did not buy the donkeys to as a, as the main goal to protect the herd, but I think that's an additional benefit. The donkeys actually, let's think about how the donkeys evolve in nature versus a horse. So the horse evolve on the plains, on those the prairies or grasslands, and they just run away. The donkeys evolve on the mountain range. So when they face a predator, they need to think about what to do because they cannot run. So they're really good at using the tools that they have, uh, biting and kicking and pushing to face the predators. So we're trying to sync up when the donkeys do have their babies uh, as close as possible to the cows because they're very jealous. I mean, they're really very keen. And I don't know why we consider the donkeys to be very down there, extremely smart. And once you bond it with your, with your livestock, with your cattle, then they are actually within the same uh, mob. Alejandro Carrillo, rancher from Chihuahua, Mexico, speaking with Lucy Cooper. And I actually um, saw Alejandro recently at a regenerative agriculture field day, and he joked there that the Chihuahuan region, which is where he comes from, is known for its big deserts and tiny dogs. So uh, I thought that was quite funny. But now on the Country Hour, it is... uh, 12.30, so it's time to check what's happening with the weather. And we have Phelan Hannafee from the Bureau of Meteorology on the line. How are you today, Phelan? Good afternoon, indeed. Yeah, not too bad, Heidi. And so what can we expect across the state this afternoon and tomorrow? I see there's some potential for severe thunderstorms uh, around some parts. Where are they likely to pop up? Yeah, indeed. The, the focal point today very much in the southeast of the state. So that uh, includes the eastern half of the Darling Downs, and the southern half of the Wide Bay Burnett as well, as well as the southeast coast. Uh, so we've got storms ongoing at the moment, not quite severe yet, but certainly a risk during this afternoon and into the early evening. It's due to a, a weak, a little weather system that's moving up along the coast and the associated southeasterly wind change here. So that's what's triggering the, the risk during this afternoon. By tomorrow, though, that, that act, the risk uh, diminishes as that system kind of moves away or clears off and We've got a, a more stable southeasterly in play up along the southeast as well. So very much just today being the focal point for that shower and storm activity. And uh, we heard earlier as well that there's a few fires burning across the state. So what are conditions like at the moment? You know, are we going to see any conditions that would hamper those fires at all? 
Yeah, indeed. So in the southeast as well, with the with the risk of storms, you got a couple of fires ongoing here. So that's certainly a watch point. The fact that we have um, a risk of storms over areas that are already that are very very dry and have ongoing fires, and you got that wind change as well, that southeasterly wind change with that trough. So that's certainly a watch point here. Further inland and away from that, it's uh, well above average temperatures, particularly across parts of the west and south. Uh, the winds are generally predominantly south-easterly in direction here, but it is still pretty dry, and we do have quite a high to, or I should say, very elevated fire dangers across parts of the northern interior and uh, central interior during during the rest of the day. And tomorrow, that after that system moves off, it will probably strengthen the wind flows here to from a southeasterly direction during tomorrow. So there is a risk that we see some locally extreme fire dangers tomorrow through parts of the northern interior and central interior as well. So that's certainly a, a watch point. So elevated fire dangers continuing, but no storm activity expected up here. It's mainly just driven by the fact that we got the above average temperatures and gusty southeasterly winds here. Yeah, and we are seeing above average temperatures quite a lot at the moment. So can we expect those sort of warmer conditions to continue? Is there any reprieve on the cards? No, not at this stage. Yeah, very well above average temperatures, particularly across parts of the west and south. So the southern half of the state uh, are going to see those those very warm conditions continue and probably increase a little bit further later in the weekend and early next week. Further north, though, we've got a bit more of a uh, an onshore flow and some cloud. Temperatures more average for the time of year. But really, in terms of heat, it's very much the southwest and southern tier with those building temperatures, particularly, particularly as we go through over the weekend, temperatures climbing uh, further with, the, with perhaps even touching the low 40s by early next week and they, the heat there is going to build due to the fact that we could have another weather system moving or approaching the southwest uh, through the early days of next week so that's going to really drag that heat and build it ahead of that system. It's also going to mean that the fire dangers are likely to be going to be a watch point as well as that how, as that heat builds and we see probably extensive um, elevated fire dangers across the interior by that stage. And you were mentioning some, you know, wind for inland Queensland, but uh, I see along the coast there is some uh, wind warnings for some areas. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Now the winds, the strongest of the winds along for the marine areas has contracted north, so it's mainly now for the Cooktown and Peninsula waters as well. That's going to stick around for into tomorrow as well, due to the fact that we still got a stiff trade flow up here as well. It's bringing in a little bit of cloud, but. The winds everywhere else, not as brisk as recent days, but you know that with with that weather system moving off the south, it'll probably induce a little bit more of a wind flow up along the east coast. Though not not strong wind worthy, but as mentioned there, they're likely to elevate the fire dangers or maintain the elevated fire dangers about parts of the interior over the next few days. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that weather update, Phelan Hennefy from the Bureau of Meteorology there, and uh, it is twenty five minutes to one on the Queensland Country Hour. Thousands of beekeepers across the country are selling off their smokers and hanging up their bee suits. The president of the New South Wales Amateur Beekeepers Association says a thousand of its members had hives euthanized during the eradication program and based on the experience with Varroa overseas, it's likely that half the nation's amateur beekeepers will cease production. Dr Lamora Osborne told Kim Honan that increased costs and the effort required to manage Varroa will cause the exodus. It will become uneconomic or off-putting for some beekeepers. 
even in Italy, where I visited about 15 years ago, where they had Varroa mite, the beekeeper that I spent the day with was saying that he's thinking of giving up beekeeping. He did it as a profession, and it was turning from being a, a winter time where you could have a holiday and he would go skiing in the Alps. Suddenly, with the Varroa mite, they have to start treating every three to four weeks. And the organization of that and the time-consuming and expense of it made it very arduous to be keeping bees. I have had an academic suggest that uh, Varroa mite could see um, at least half our amateur or semi-commercial beekeepers leave the industry. Is that a fair, I guess, estimation of the the loss? that's a fair estimate. Yeah, that's yep. that's devastating. I think it's a fair estimate, and it means that the cost of pollination is going to go up. And uh, we've also got to think about trying to stop it going across borders to at least slow down the pace of its expansion across Australia. And do you know how many amateur beekeepers had their hives destroyed, uh, euthanised in the last 15 months? I can tell you that nearly everybody in the Hunter Valley and everybody on the central coast. I can't give you exact numbers, but it was devastating to go up and see those people when they'd had all their hives destroyed. And remember, they've also been going out to destroy hives when the going was tough and the organisation could have perhaps been better. The actual test that the government chose to use was an inappropriate test, which didn't help. In what way? Well, they, they chose the alcohol wash and you had to go down into the brood box, get nurse bees and actually make sure you didn't include the queen in the alcohol, otherwise she would die. It took about 20 minutes per hive and you could accidentally kill the queen. Everywhere else in the world they've been using um, drone uncapping, which drones are unnecessary anyway, apart from fertilising the queen. You pull out the bodies of those sort of larvae and you can immediately see the larvae, and the larvae of the Varroa mite are actually, 97% of them are in that site. So it's been, let's just say, an attempt to stop Varroa mite that's been flawed in many links along the chain. So there were um, 30,000 hives estimated to be euthanised in the last 15 months. How many of those do you think were amateur, at least thousands? Yes. The the 4,500 beekeepers that are in the Amateur Association, um, it's probably about 1,000 people that have had their hives euthanized. And and what's the sort of the average size apiary do they have? Like a couple of hives, 17? It could be 1 to 50. Usually it's 1 or 2 under 10. I've got 40. Mm, Do you feel lucky that you didn't have to euthanize any of your hives? I feel very fortunate, but I also feel the weight of the grief of all those people who've actually had their highest euthanized and also have been out doing that job which turned out in the end to be futile. How soon do you think we're likely to see beekeepers leave the industry? I think it's happening already. Yeah, we've had several people leave the industry because they've lost their income. In other countries in the world, about 50% of the beekeepers stopped keeping beehives when Varroa arrived. And so what other challenges do you see that Varroa mite will pose for amateur beekeepers? I think the costs and the time-consuming nature of these tests is going to deter a lot of them. Dr Lamora Osborne, a GP, part-time beekeeper and the president of the New South Wales Amateur Beekeepers Association.
And the 4,500 members of the ABA includes beekeepers in southeast Queensland and Alice Springs. It's 20 to 1 on the Queensland Country Hour. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Artificial intelligence technology and 24-hour surveillance will be used to detect and monitor critically endangered or threatened species in outback Queensland. Australian Wildlife Conservancy is setting up 60 monitoring sites at Kurabulka Station near Bulya to detect and monitor the critically endangered plains wanderer as well as a threatened species like Kawari and Bilby. Dr Alexander Watson, regional ecologist with the AWC told Danielle Lancaster having access to such a large area of potential plains wanderer habitats will allow the organisation to learn about these often hard to find animals. It's a really, really amazing station, land and is home to a variety of very interesting species, including koari, which is a little predatory marsupial, and greater bilby. Everybody knows Australia's Easter Bunny, and it may be home to the Plains Wanderer, which is a critically endangered bird. What will you be doing with this funding? The funding is really, really important because one of the things about doing work on these threatened species is it's often very difficult to go and survey for them. They're often very cryptic, very hard to see, nocturnal, and they occur in very remote areas. The way ecologists get round those problems is by using specialised equipment, and this funding will allow us to purchase 60 unique recorders. So what these recorders do is they're solar panel. They'll be left in the environment, and one of them is a bioacoustic device that listens for calls. So the planes wanderer will survey basically using a device that's listening out for the call, and it also has a camera set up to it too. So that camera will be running 24 hours a day, and it'll be looking out for things like kawaris and greater buildings. Kilbroka Station, which is just south of Bullia, is a huge station. How do you work out where you're going to put those monitoring stations? Yeah, that's a really good point. So with these species, they actually occur in specialised habitat. And so the first thing we do is actually do a mapping study of the vegetation types on that property. And we decide by knowing the knowledge of the habitat utilised by these different species to sort of separate out the areas that we think they'll occur versus areas that are unsuitable. That's the first step. And then the second step is you actually try to randomly select areas within the good habitat and distribute the cameras and bioacoustic devices in a large array. So you want them to be far enough apart so that they're effectively independent cameras or bioacoustic devices. So effectively, you want to make sure that if you get a bilby on one camera and then you get a bilby on another camera, they're actually two different bilbies. Have these animals actually been recorded on the station? It's my understanding that we have got Kawari and Grouse Greater Bilby there. They've been recorded, but Plains Wanderer has not been recorded yet. Now, they're very shy. They're very elusive. Why is this work important for these three species? They're all vulnerable to extinction. In fact, the Plains Wanderer is critically endangered. It's one of the, um, the six species next thought to go extinct in terms of the bird world. So critically endangered, things like fox predation, cat predation in particular are incredibly deleterious to the species. And also you have habitat modification through either land clearing or overgraze. And so what we're looking at is trying to find the last populations of these wild animals. And effectively, when we find them, when we're working with NAPCO and actually thinking about 
about ways of addressing key threatening processes. So that could be cat management, for instance. With the data that you will collect, you will then go back with NAPCO, work with them on how you then can progress. Yes, the very beginning of part of the of the relationship. And so at this stage, we're trying to gather information. We're doing the same in northern Australia in a pastoral station called Bullo River, where we actually work. We've worked there for the last five or six years with that pastoral owner. And effectively, for the first stage of these projects, we're just collecting and understanding as much information about the species that occur there and also the key threatening processes. And then afterwards, we'll actually work with the pastoral owner and look through options that not only really important for conservation, but also coincide with a sustainable pastoralist industry. Because obviously, NAPCO are a, a company that um, runs cattle, and we're going to try to work a way of actually making that work in conjunction with conservation. Why a partnership such as the one that the AWC has formed with the North Australian Pastoral Company, which is one of Australia's oldest and largest beef producers, and other pastoral companies across Australia is so important? 70% of Australia is underpastoralist, and so effectively 70% of Australia's biodiversity is found on cattle stations. Now, that's an enormous amount of area, and there's many, many threatened species that occur on these properties. So our desktop studies show there's multiple species, something like 760 vertebrate species that are actually known to occur on the NAPCO properties. So that's over an area of 6 million hectares. 70 of those species are actually listed as threatened. So that's really important. Interesting, 31 of those species are actually found on NAPCO properties but aren't actually found on AWC sanctuaries. So AWC's mission is to protect all Australian wildlife. We have 30 properties that we're doing this. We've got a huge portfolio, but we can't actually conserve everything. So we really need to develop these partnerships with pastoral companies and also Indigenous traditional owners on their their country, which we do in the Kimberley. Those huge partnerships are actually incredibly important to actually make sure that we're adequately protecting and conserving biodiversity and achieving our mission. Back to the new monitoring stations, when do you hope they'll be installed and how will they survive the harsh western heat? Yeah, so that's part of the challenge. So we're, we're building them with Frontier Labs. It's never been done before. Next week, we're getting our first device and we're going to trial it, see how it goes and how the weather affects it. And once that we refine the actual technology, we'll be getting the equipment by the end of the year and we hope to put them out in March next year. Everything degrades, as you know, in the sun and also flooding is an enormous issue as well. There are fire risks. So we do lose equipment, something that has happened. But the way we normally sort of manage this is actually set them up in areas that we think are best protected from those threats. And if there is an oncoming fire or cast through an enormous flood, we'll go out and collect them and take them in from the field. Dr Alexander Watson speaking with Danielle Lancaster there. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on your local ABC radio icon to go to the local station page and find our live shows, audio segments, catch-up programs and more. The Australian Marine Conservation Society says dugongs in the Great Barrier Reef need to be protected and gillnets are playing a role in their decline. The latest results from a James Cook University aerial survey of dugong populations for the southern Great Barrier Reef have been released and Simon Miller from AMCS says they further strengthen, strengthen the case from banning nets. He told Adam Stephen there is a balance between having a continued supply of seafood and reducing fishing in places of concern. Now, the latest survey is just being completed for the Southern Great Barrier Reef, which stretches from Hinchinbrook to Bundaberg. 
uh, as well as Harvey Bay and Moreton Bay. And they'll be out surveying the northern Great Barrier Reef, so north of Hinchin Brook and up off Cape York uh, over the uh, next few weeks, I think starting next week. Now, what the survey shows us is uh, a really disturbing trend. So unfortunately, there's a long term, been a long term decline of about 2.3% each year in the dugong population on the southern Great Barrier Reef. And what's uh, particularly alarming about that is also there's been very few calves observed on the last survey. So no, very few young dugongs, uh, particularly in that far southern portion of the Great Barrier Reef. So we've got this long term declining trend of the dugong population, which really needs to be preserved. Uh, it is a threatened species. And they are part of the reason that the Great Barrier Reef is listed as a World Heritage Area. So we need to be doing all that we can to protect this species and reverse this declining trend. Reading the study, it seems like the researchers believe that habitat disturbance is, is the major cause of the decline in the dugong numbers. Um, but AMCS is suggesting that gillnets are also playing a role there. But is that actually fleshed out in this study or is that inference that you're kind of inferring that because the declines are happening, there must be some that are being lost to, to gillnets? Yeah, no, that, that this is part of the study. So what the study finds um, is that there has been that long-term decline. Now, there's a number of threats to dugongs uh, on the southern Great Barrier Reef uh, and throughout Queensland. One of the biggest threats, uh, as you say, is about environmental disturbance generally caused by climate change and flood events, uh, which cause, uh, causes large losses of seagrass and seagrasses are the primary food source for dugongs. But when you've got this long term declining trend, you need to be taking action against all the threats to dugongs. Now, some of the other key threats to dugongs, as well as climate change, are uh, the accidental bycatch in commercial gillnets. Uh, there's also the issue of boat strike uh, from any vessel uh, in inshore areas, uh, as well as general seagrass loss from water pollution and things like that. Do you feel if there had been better engagement maybe between the industry and fisheries managers and conservationists in the past that it wouldn't have reached this point? Or did you, do you feel like gillnets were always going to be on the chopping block at some point? I think uh, this issue around bycatch of threatened species has always been a prominent one. There's been plenty of discussions over the years around what can be done to mitigate those impacts. Unfortunately, those uh, steps that needed to have been taken many years ago haven't been taken. And we've got to the stage now where we've got all of these cumulative pressures on threatened species. We've got climate change hanging over, uh, which won't just impact the coral reef. It's going to impact all kinds of habitats within the World Heritage Area, as well as the species that depend on those. And when you've got species, iconic uh, species like dugongs, turtles, also sawfish, um, some of those populations are in decline on the Great Barrier Reef. They're part of the reason that the World Heritage Area is a World Heritage Area. So we need to be taking, as a country, uh, as the Queensland and Australian governments, need to be taking all the action that they can to protect those threatened species. Now, one of the key threats to many of them is bycatch in commercial gillnets. 
uh, and that's why um, we are supportive of the policy position that's been taken by the government. But we also think off the back of um, this additional evidence that's coming through from this latest survey of the Dugong populations, uh, that because that is in long-term decline, we need to do something about it now. We can't wait till 2027. Uh, let's look at protecting these key areas for the species um, and make sure we're protecting those dugong protection areas. Simon Miller from the Australian Marine Conservation Society speaking with Adam Stevens, And it's eight minutes to one on the Queensland Country Hour. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. Since the early 19th century, station hands and drovers around Australia have used stock whips to round up cattle by making a loud cracking sound. But Nathan Whippy Griggs performs to hundreds of tourists every night, cracking whips to the beat of popular music. Mataranka, a popular tourist destination in the Northern Territory. It was just one night, we were down here actually at the, at the Mataranka homestead, one of the fellas, he just forgot my name. So he just went, hey, whippy. And then it just stuck. So, yeah, that's how it come about. I'm Nathan Whippy Griggs. Um, I'm here at Mataranka Homestead. And my job here is doing some whip cracking for the tourists and just giving, you know, having a good time cracking whips. Right, here we go. It was love at first whip for Nathan Whippy Griggs. I started cracking whips. Um, actually in the Northern Territory when I was 14. Um, at the time, we were travelling, me, mum and dad, and the older sisters, three of them. <laughs> and we were in a bus and we were relocating from WA and as a family, that mum and dad decided to jump in a bus and do a bit of a tour of the top end here. Um, but yeah, as we were coming through the Northern Territory, I'd seen a bloke cracking a whip at Timber Creek, uh, which is not far from the WA border there. And I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and after that, I went out and bought a whip but yeah, when I was 19, I got in my ute and buggered off back up to the top end here because, yeah, I knew I loved it from when I was a kid. When you throw the whip out at a certain angle, it puts a loop into that and that travels down the whip. Um, and because it's on a taper, it's increasing in momentum and that force is being forced into a, um, a smaller area. When that flicks out at the end, it's actually breaking the speed of sound. So when a whip cracks, it's breaking the speed of sound. You know, a big loud crack should be hitting about 1500 k an hour. Nathan is a showman. He performs at a popular tourist campsite near some hot springs six nights a week cracking his whips to the beat of music or swinging his body around whips that are on fire. It's all about the spectacle rather than practical use. Yeah, as far as cattle go and, you know, working on a farm as such with it, not so much. Um, I've always lived in the bush, but more, you know, hobby farms and stuff like that, so no need to chase cattle around with a whip. Outside the show, you might be having a party or your mates around, and, yeah, it's always a, a bit of a... Yeah, you pull the whip out after a few beers and, and watch the carnage. You give it to your mates and they'll end up hitting themselves and chasing each other around. It'll be, yeah, good Aussie humour. It's good fun. So I've got a few Guinness World Records. The ones I hold, I've got the longest whip in the world at 100 metres long. I made that whip crack the thing. So most whip cracks in a minute with one hand at uh, 359 cracks in a minute. 
with one whip. And then the record I've broken three times now is the most whip cracks in a minute with two whips. And that current, that's currently at 697 cracks in a minute. Nathan's whip cracking talents have taken him around the country and he's got his sights set on the world stage. I've got some stuff with um, Disney for the upcoming release of the Indiana Jones the new show. So that'll be uh, that'll be interesting. I'm going to fly down to uh, to Melbourne for that and crack a few whips for the the premiere of Indiana Jones. And then later on next year I'm in the early stages of planning a tour through Texas and USA, so that's going to be something completely different for me, but really looking forward to doing that. You heard there from Nathan Whippy Griggs. That story was by Samantha Dick and additional production by Elsa Silberstein for the story stream. Let's head now to Blackhall to get the market report from today's sale. Here's Sam Hart. A total of 2,300 were yarded for the monthly Blackhall Wiener and store sale for September. Overall quality was good, but price variances between C and D muscle lines continued to widen. All the usual buyers were active, however most categories followed a similar softer trend to other centres. Lightweight restocker steers saw support from North Queensland selling to 284.2 to average 243. Those 280 to 330 kilos made to 260.2 to average 242 and heavy feeder steers sold to 246.2 to average 224. Local restockers were active on lightweight restock heifers, selling to 196.2 to average 150, and medium weight heifers to return into the paddock made to 180 cents to average 154. A pen of charity heavy prime heifers sold to 206.2, medium weight cows to the processor sold to 148.2 to average 139, and heavy prime cows saw an extra processor operating, selling to 175.2 to average 164. Heavy bulls suitable for the live export sold to 208.2 to average 198. This has been Sam Half the National Livestock Reporting Service. And a good afternoon to Errol Luck, who has the results from the weekly Warwick sheep sale. Warwick Asian spent 1,465 lambs and 1,007 mutton for a total of 2,472. The buyer lineup included one extra processor. However, one regular processor didn't operate due to Apatow upgrades. Young lambs to restock is lifted in quality and price, selling from 34 to 55, up by 6. Older light trade lambs eased by 16 and sold from 53 to 55. Ideal trade weight lambs to wholesalers made 80 to average 68, with feeder operators paying to 74. Heavy lambs to processors reduced by 3 and sold to 92, with an average of 82. Lightweight hoggers to processors lifted in price, selling from 24 to 38, with heavy hoggers at 61 to average 55. Light score one used sold from $2 to $7 with heavy used to processors selling from 28 to 40. Merino weathers with skin made 25 and ram lambs to processors sold from 11 to 27. This is Errol Luck from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. 
And that is the Queensland Country Hour for this Thursday afternoon. I'm Madeline McCosker. Thanks so much for your company. Don't forget you can check the ABC Rural website for daily stories right around the country. Uh, And if you want to have a look at today's program or past programs, you can head to the Queensland Country Hour website uh, and you can listen to the Country Hour or any other program wherever you are with the ABC Listen app. Uh, It's just about to hit one o'clock, so it's almost time for the news. Have a great day. I'll uh, I'll chat with you tomorrow. It's almost one o'clock.